Here it is. From deep inside your audio device of choice. I'm excited already. And there's no reason for it. Ladies and gentlemen, the stuff that surrounds us is um, becoming more and more interesting, more and more suggestive of things that could be happening to us. Take glyphosate, a broad-spectrum herbicide. It's uh, known as Roundup. Most of the corn and soy grown in the United States is based on a... um, a breed of the corn and soy crops that's been genetically modified not to produce a higher yield, not to produce a more nu- nutritious or flavorful food. It's been genetically modified to withstand Roundup so that uh, farmers can apply the weed killer to the area where um, your corn, your soy is grown, and it'll survive while all the weeds die. That's what's been going on since the late 1970s. The volume of glyphosate-based herbicides, they're called GBHs in the trade, don't you know? Uh, the, the volume of them has increased, uh, uh, as applied to crops, has increased approximately a hundredfold. This according to a paper in Environmental Health. Further increases in the volume applied are likely due to more and higher rates of application in response to the widespread emergence of glyphosate-resistant weeds in response to the use of the herbicide so far. They were designed to replace or reduce reliance on herbicides causing well-documented problems associated with drift and crop damage and human health risks. Initial industry toxicity testing suggested that glyphosate herbicides posed relatively low risks to non-target species. That's you and me. Leading regulatory authorities worldwide to set high acceptable exposure rates Regulators have dramatically increased tolerance levels in coin, sorry, corn and soybeans and alfalfa crops. In the last decade, animal and epidemiology studies published have pointed to the need for a fresh look at glyphosate toxicity. For example, and you've heard this on this program, the World Health Organization recently concluded that glyphosate is, quote, probably carcinogenic to humans. Again, that's us. In response to changing use patterns and advances in scientific understanding of their potential hazards, a group of scientists issued this consensus statement in environmental health, a statement of concern drawing on emergent science relative to the safety of these herbicides. It considers published literature, mechanisms of action, toxicity in animals, and epidemiological studies. They conclude, these scientists do, that glyphosate herbicides are the most heavily applied herbicide in the world and usage continues to rise. Worldwide, they often contaminate drinking water sources, precipitation and air, especially in agricultural regions. The half-life of glyphosate in water and soil is longer than previously recognized. Glyphosate and its metabolites are widely present in the global soybean supply. Have some tofu, won't you? Human exposure to these herbicides is rising. 
Glyphosate is now authoritatively classified as a probable human carcinogen. Regulatory estimates of tolerable daily intakes for glyphosate in the U.S. and the European Union are based on outdated science. These are the conclusions of this group of scientists issuing this note of concern. We offer a series of recommendations related to the need for new investments in epidemiological studies, biomonitoring, and toxicology studies that draw on the principles of endocrinology to determine whether the effects of glyphosate-based herbicides are due to endocrine-disrupting activities. Those would be our hormones, ladies and gentlemen. We suggest, say the scientists, that common commercial formulations of these herbicides should be prioritized for inclusion in government-led toxicology testing programs conducted by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. But meantime, most of your corn, most of your soy has it in it. In the, in the seeds. It's applied to the seeds before they ever grow, the plants ever grow. Hey, how's our, how are our freedom-loving friends in Saudi Arabia doing? A journalist there has been sentenced to five years in a Saudi Arabian prison for, quote, insulting the rulers of the country. That's a bad thing. And ridiculing Islamic religious figures. He should have known. Allah Brinji was convicted by the counterterrorism court for tweets... He posted in support of Saudi Arabian women's right to drive cars, human rights defenders, and prisoners of conscience. He's also been given an eight-year travel ban, a fine of $13,400, and the closure of his Twitter account. That's got to hurt. He's arrested almost two years ago, has been in detention, mainly solitary confinement, ever since. His offenses originally included the act of apostasy, that's considered a serious crime in Saudi Arabia and carries the death penalty. He wasn't, wasn't convicted of that due to lack of evidence. No, I, I don't know how you would actually prove apostasy. But it's worth trying. Our freedom-loving friends in Saudi Arabia. Hello, welcome to the show.
From the edge of America, from the home of the homeless, I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show, a program that has as one of our goals the separation for all time of traffic and weather. They don't really don't belong together. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, you know about the F-35 jet fighter. It's uh, most charitably described as beleaguered. It's a cost $400 billion so far. I've got that on me. Um, And now the Pentagon is trying something new, according to the Washington Post. A 14-stop tour of the F-35 to bolster the image of the most expensive weapons system in history. A rebranding. The program has suffered years of delay and billions of dollars in cost overruns. But According to the Pentagon, one of its main problems is its poor standing in the realm of public perception. Pentagon executives see a branding refresh opportunity. They're showcasing the sleek jet at a series of air shows and events across the country. Getting out there and telling the story is part of what we need to continue to do, says Air Force Lieutenant General Christopher Bogdan. Changing the public's perception, he says, though, won't be easy. The cost of the plane is coming down from $108 million this year to $85 million in 2019. So hurry up and order yours now. The services have expressed, the armed services have expressed such confidence in the plane they've decided to inc- extend the operational life to 2070. They're increasing production at Lockheed Martin, but the program's executive officer, Bogdan, Notes some continuing problems. Most notably, stability issues with the software. Now, since the F-35 is known as a flying computer, using 8 million lines of code, that's not trivial. Stability problems with the software. 
if they had that in your car, you might, you know, call a cab. Uh, that complexity has contributed to all sorts of glitches, the most recent being a problem with communication between the plane's radar and its main computer. They have nothing to say to each other. Really, they're... A mistiming is causing the radar to shut off about once every four hours of flight time, Bogdan said at a congressional hearing. And he admits, quote, that is not good, unquote. I don't know if I'd want to be a pilot and watch the screen go blank, said the official at the Government Accountability Office, Congress's watchdog. He calls the problem critical. Lockheed Martin is working on a solution. There have also been glitches in the plane's $400,000 special helmet, ejection seat, and engine. Aside from that, Mrs. Lincoln, the thing is a dream. In 2014, an engine caught fire. The fleet was temporarily grounded. Of course, some of the problems are self-induced. The Pentagon originally designed the plane to be suitable for all three services and then backed away and decided that each of the armed services could have their own version of the plane. And most notably, ladies and gentlemen, the Pentagon was committed to buying the plane before it was fully developed. Something that uh, we've seen in other projects by the United States Army Corps of Engineers. Sure, build it now, design it later. But watch for the rebranded F-35 when it comes to your town or if there's a software problem to your tech support guy. And now, ladies and gentlemen, time to follow the dollar. Thanks to a dramatic increase in advertising by presidential campaigns and their allied super PACs, the American syndicated television game show Wheel of Fortune has attracted $17.8 million in political ads through the beginning of March. This cycle's campaign spending on airtime during Wheel of Fortune will easily exceed the $57 million it earned in 2012 more than any other TV show that election. This according to Bloomberg Politics. So far, Wheel of Fortune has brought in seven times more than at this point in 2012. According to a group which tracks political advertising, the next top earner was the Today Show with 54 million, followed by 50 million for Jeopardy, another TV game show. But not, not, not with as much yelling as wheel. Candidates, super PACs, and other political groups brought, bought more than 13,600 political ads on Wheel of Fortune from January 1, 2015 through March 1st of this year. Give me a D! The volume of political ads has crowded out other commercials in primary states. During the episode of the program that aired in Des Moines the Friday before the Iowa caucuses, six minutes of the seven minutes and eight seconds of ads that ran were political. Demographics are the explanation. The average viewer of the show is 50 years old. Give me an O! And 70% say they always vote, according to a company which follows media trends. Last year, an average of 29 million people turned into wheel each week. The next most popular syndicated show was Jeopardy! with 26 million. Like news, we're on daily, says the show's producer. Very few of our viewers record the show for play later. Give me an L! Wheel is syndicated to local affiliates. 
which sell about 80% of the show's commercial time. The show has been renewed into uh, 2018. The political ad spending is part of the pitch when the show is sold to local stations, says the president of CBS Global Distribution. It always has been, but over the years it's obviously gotten more important as the amount of money that's being spent increases. Unquote. Wheels' desirability helps it command a, des- a considerable premium. A couple of years ago, amid a hotly contested U.S. Senate race in Arkansas, a local TV station pushed prices for 30-second ads during Wheel of Fortune from $1,250 in July to $50,000 in October. About the same, well, no, about half as much as national advertising. What planet are we on? said a media buyer. Remembers what he thought that year, but the reason they're charging $50,000, he says, is because people are paying. People, candidates, how do they afford it? They have to raise money. Follow the dollar. And now news of the Olympic movement. Produced by Jim Ebersole Jr. Amid rising concerns about the Zika virus, Brazil's health ministry this week announced its plan to launch a smartphone app to follow the disease ahead of and during the upcoming Olympics. The app will help visitors by allowing them to determine if they have the virus by asking various health questions and even directing them to the nearest pharmacy or hospital if necessary. According to Agence France Presse, it will also provide information on preventing contracting the virus in the first place. The app will be available in English, Spanish, Portuguese, French, Arabic, Chinese, and Russian. comes out in May. The Rio Games happen in August. Efforts are underway to reduce areas where virus-carrying mosquitoes breed. More about that in a moment. When it comes to protecting athletes and staffers from Zika, the United States Olympic Committee has come down on the side of ensuring members of its traveling party have as much information as they can about the potential dangers. Our sense is the more we put the decision into the hands of the individual athletes with the best information possible, the better position we're in to stay what we are, which is a sports organization, says the head of the United States Olympic Committee, thereby washing its hands. The World Health Organization did declare Zika a global public health emergency last month. It's uh, carried by mosquitoes. It is being linked to severe birth defects, including microcephaly, although a group of physicians who practice in some of the areas in question in Brazil have raised the question of whether the microcephaly, which is occurring in Brazil, but not in other countries with a Zika virus presence, might be caused, in fact, by the use in Brazil of a larvicide to kill mosquitoes, the larvicide put in bodies of water that are used for drinking water. And Deadline Rio, a spokesman for the Rio Olympics, says he's confident that the sprawling corruption scandal engulfing Brazil won't touch the projects connected to the Games. 
Rio spokesman Mario Andrada was asked about the growing graft investigation in a teleconference call this week, the day after the country's leading newspapers released spreadsheets showing the giant construction company Odebrecht appearing to make payments to hundreds of leading politicians, including the Rio state governor and the Rio mayor. We remain confident that Olympic constructions, at least sports constructions, are not into this whole issue, said the Rio spokesman. The International Olympic Committee has repeatedly called the Rio mayor a key games organizer, its key games organizer, and a bright spot as the games have been plagued by countless problems. Odebrecht, the, the construction company, is involved in many Olympic projects from sports venues in the Olympic Park to other construction in the city. It's not immediately clear if the payments in question were legal or illegal, but the massive scope of them raises questions in a country where corruption is endemic. The CEO of the construction company has already been sentenced to, tw- to 19 years in jail for corruption. In the position we are, we cannot worry too much about things, said the Olympic spokesman. We need to keep rowing faster and faster in a forward direction. That's the spirit. On uh, Thursday of this week, the organizers called off a test event for track cycling because the wooden track has not yet been installed in the new velodrome. The test event was scheduled for a month from now. But the spokesman said he's 120% sure the venue would be ready for the Olympics. And that's a lot of percent. Because the Olympics, it's a movement, and we all need one every day. Speaking of the stuff around us, as I was at the beginning of the broadcast, hackers have infiltrated a water utilities control system and changed the levels of chemicals being used to treat tap water. This according to the tech website, The Register. The cyber attack is documented in a security breach report from Verizon Security Solutions. The utility in question is referred to using a a pseudonym. Its location is not revealed. A hacktivist group with ties to Syria compromised the water company's computer after exploiting unpatched web vulnerabilities in the part of its computer system that takes payments for customers, that is, the general public. Uh, The hack exposed the company's aging operational control system because login credentials for the system were stored on the server that faces the general public. The uh, system that was compromised regulated valves and ducts that controlled the flow of water and chemicals used to treat it through the system. Many critical IT and operational technology functions ran on a single system, according to a team of computer forensic experts. The whole incident, says the register, highlights the weaknesses in securing critical infrastructure systems which often rely on aging or hopelessly insecure setups. By the way, of course, personal information of the utilities, two and a half million customers were also breached. Reports that hackers have breached water treatment plants are rare but not unprecedented. Back in November 2011, computer screenshots purported to show the user interface used to monitor and control equipment at the Water and Sewer Department at the city of South Houston, Texas. And those screenshots were made public by hackers who claimed to have penetrated its systems. Most recently, hackers caused a serious damage after breaching a German steel mill and wrecking one of its blast furnaces, according to a German 
government agencies. Hackers got into production systems after tricking victims with emails. Help, I'm trapped in a foreign country. Please send money and login credentials. And uh, the new Iraq, ladies and gentlemen. For thousands of years, the marshes at the confluence of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers in what we call Iraq were an oasis of green in a dry landscape, hosting a wealth of wildlife. The culture of the March people who live there is tightly woven with the ecosystem of the marshes. Recent decades have brought extreme change to the fertile lands famous for the birth of agriculture and the rise of some of the world's earliest cities. The sphere of daily life for Marsh Arab women who were deeply involved in the ecology-based social structure of the area has shrunk as the natural resources they traditionally cultivated have vanished. This is a report from an international team of researchers in Effects of Mesopotamian March desiccation on the cultural knowledge and livelihood of marsh arab women published in the journal of ecosystem health and sustainability joint journal of the ecological society of america and ecological society of china china they're killing us the study is the first to specifically document marsh arab women's cultural relationship to marsh ecological services The whole situation in the marshes is completely different from uh, what was happening in the 70s and early 80s, says the lead researcher. Women used to play a role in the ecological system. They used to work with men in gathering reeds and in fishing. We would see them in the market when they come and sell their produce, like the fish and milk from the buffalo, the cheese, and the yogurt that they make. That's over. The older women who were adults before the war would tell us back then, I was making dung patties, collecting reeds, taking care of buffalo, said one of the authors. They say, now I'm just at home. Saddam Hussein did attempt to drain the area as a retribution for the Marsh Arabs. Being not Saddam-friendly during that era, but then uh, that was ended in 2009, and the area came back for a while. They were a cultivated landscape shaped by selective harvest hunting, fishing, and burning to promote the natural resources that the Marsh Arabs used, says one of the authors. But climate change modeling predicts a future of hotter summers, accentuated droughts, and shriek, shrinking water snow, shrinking winter snowpacks in Turkey's mountains where the Tigris and Euphrates rivers arise. In Iraq, war and ongoing political instability have magnified the problems besieging marshes worldwide, particularly in arid landscapes, pollution and too many demands on the water that sustains them. That burst of recovery in the mid-2000s after drying up nearly completely is over. Partly because water in the Tigris and Euphrates have has dropped to 20% of the pre-war volume and the remaining water carries so much salt it is often undrinkable. A 2007 drought hit the region hard. The generation of marsh Arabs growing up outside the marshes had no practical experience of living there and struggled to adapt to the lifestyle of their parents' youth. The water for the rivers comes from outside Iraq's borders. Iraq is at the mercy of the water policies of its upstream neighbors, Turkey, Syria, and Iran, all of which have intensified water development projects in recent years. And the current political situation makes water diplomacy difficult. Just ask Arizona and California and Nevada how easy that is. 
But who needs water? Now, news of the Godhead. Eight women who sued the Seattle Archdiocese alleging sexual abuse by former priest Michael Cody while he served in several parishes have reached a $9.1 million settlement with church officials. That's what the Archdiocese announced this week, a s- settled in Seattle. Cody died last year. He served in various Catholic parishes in western Washington during the 60s and into the late 70s, praying on praying with an E, on children for years, though church officials knew he was sick. That's according to documents from what's known as Cody's secret file in the archdiocese. That's according to the Bellingham Herald. In a statement, Seattle's archbishop, Peter Sartain, said he hopes the multi-million dollar settlement helps bring closure to the women and demonstrates the church's commitment to address the devastating impact of clergy sexual abuse and to encourage victims to come forward, the Seattle Archdiocese a couple months ago published a list identifying 77 clergy members, including Cody, who lived or worked in western Washington and are known or believed to have sexually abused children. Of the eight women Cody sexually abused, six of them while he served in St. Charles Parish in Skagit County. He abused the other two while he was assigned to another parish in Bellingham. I deeply regret the abuse by Michael Cody against these victims, and I hope this monetary settlement and the counseling we've provided them will bring healing and give them a measure of closure so they can move forward, say the archbishop. He wants to meet with the women to offer a personal apology. One of the attorneys for the women said in a statement he believes the archdiocese settled because, quote, it does not want the public to hear the full evidence that exists against Cody and the then archbishop, Thomas Connolly, who was largely responsible for moving the priest around to unsuspecting parishes. Moving those priests. Pattern we see often in News of the Godly, a copyrighted feature of this very broadcast. Sad. 
This is Le Show, and ladies and gentlemen, not everything you see on Fox News ain't true. The um, various Tea Party groups that were saying they were singled out by the FBI, sorry, by the IRS for discriminatory or unfair treatment in the application process for tax-exempt status have been vindicated by the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals ruling against the government this week. The court's decision raked the IRS over the coals for their for their actions, as well as the Department of Justice as for how they've represented the IRS. The decision opened with a lengthy description of the actions the IRS took in targeting certain organizations seeking tax exemptions as nonprofit orgs. The IRS picked out groups by using politically related search terms like Tea Party, government spending, how the country is run. Those organizations were placed on a Be on the Lookout list, or BOLO. A special team handled the groups, making them jump through hoops sometimes for years. The IRS asked for a ridiculous amount of information and then threatened to cancel their applications if they didn't respond quickly. They had to provide donor lists, issues that were important to the groups as well as their positions on them and whether any of the officers or directors had ever or will ever run for office as well as their political affiliations. The IRS's response to the initial Inspector General's report, they acknowledged mistakes were made but said centralization was warranted for quality and consistency. When the group sued, they requested a list of the IRS employees who worked on the BOLO list. The IRS refused. The groups requested the names of organizations on the BOLO list so they could identify others in the same situation. The district court ordered the IRS to turn it over, that list, but the IRS and the DOJ tried to fight it, bringing the case to the Court of Appeals. The IRS argued the information was confidential tax return information. The Court of Appeals disagreed, sending the case back to the district court, ordering the IRS to turn over the information. But the Court of Appeals didn't stop there. After making clear their decision, they capped it off by scolding the DOJ, the Department of Justice, for dragging their feet in the case. Not everything you see on Fox News is untrue. Now, ladies and gentlemen, this is your brain on the war on drugs. Quote, The Nixon campaign in 1968 and the Nixon White House after that had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. Unquote, former Nixon domestic policy chief John Ehrlichman. In an article in Harper's by a writer named Dan Baum, who's arguing for legalization of drugs and citing the experiences of, among other nations, Portugal in his uh, piece. Ehrlichman's comment is the first time the war on drugs has been plainly characterized as a political assault designed to help Nixon win and keep the White House. You understand what I'm saying? This is a quote from Ehrlichman. We knew we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black, but by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. We could arrest their leaders, raid their homes, break up their meetings, and vilify them night after night on the evening news. Did we know we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. Unquote. 
This is a stark departure from Nixon's publicist, unquote, John Ehrlichman, domestic policy advisor for Richard Nixon. Stark departure from Nixon's public explanation for the war on drugs, framing it as a response to an increase in heroin addiction and the rising use of weed and hallucinogens by students. Ehrlichman died in 1999. His five children have questioned the veracity of this, quote, We never saw or heard anything from our dad that was derogatory about any person of color, they said in a statement provided to CNN. The 1994 alleged quote we saw repeated in social media for the first time this week does not square with what we know of our father. We do not subscribe to the alleged racist point of view that this writer now implies 22 years following the so-called interview of John and 16 years following his death when he can no longer respond. Ehrlichman's comments didn't surface until now after Baum remembered them while going back through old notes for the Harper's story. Baum said he had no reason to believe Ehrlichman was being dishonest and viewed them as an atonement from a man long after his tumultuous run in the White House ended. Quote, I think Ehrlichman was waiting for someone to come and ask him. I think he felt bad about it. I think he had a lot to feel bad about, as with Eagle Krogh, who was another Watergate guy, Baum told CNN. Baum interviewed Ehrlichman and others for his 1996 book, Smoke and Mirrors, leaving out the Ehrlichman comment then from the book because it didn't fit the narrative style focused on putting readers in the middle of the backroom discussions themselves without input from the author. Baum equated Ehrlichman's admission with traumatic war stories that often take decades for veterans to talk about and said it clearly took time for Ehrlichman and other Nixon aides he interviewed to candidly explain the war on drugs. We have a a tape from heaven, which might elicit some reaction from the late president. A little early to be uh, buzzing me, sir. Huh? We normally get together this time. Only thing that keeps me from going buggy in this conference. Of course, uh, <laughs> I shouldn't say that. He runs the place, of course, but... Uh, well, I know, but, uh, hmm? you know, it's Easter. <laughs> well, of course, but uh, that's for the people down there, isn't it? You know, <laughs> up here, it's, it's like Easter every day, if you ask me. Always with the uh, he is risen stuff. Yeah. You know? I mean, heck, we rose too, but we don't go around bragging about that, do we? <laughs> well, even so, sir, I was... Uh, Trying to get my wings dry clean before the big parade, so... Hold on, let me uh, say something, and this is in no way meant to be uh, understood as a, a criticism, mm-hmm. but if you if you spend a little less time worrying about your damn wings and a little more worrying about the future of this All right, damn a, universe... Yes, yes, sir. I, I, I mean, I'm here with what seems to be the... Well, it doesn't seem to be the problem. It is the problem. It's, right. like, it's the Orlegman problem. Ah, ah. Yes. Well, I mean, he's all over the place yeah. with this uh, war on drugs stuff. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Apparently, back when he was in his second thoughts phase, he talked to some writer. Right, writer's name is um, hmm? Baum. That's right. Yeah. That's right. Mm-hmm. Baum. Mm-hmm. Jewish. His name is Baum. Mm-hmm. Could be German. <laughs> Germans in the media. Hold on, let me tell you something. Mm-hmm. You haven't been away from Earth that long. Well, anyway, we... 
We did reach out. Uh, now, what the hell does that mean? Uh, reached out. Yeah. See, mm-hmm. I hear all the all the new inductees mm-hmm. up here saying that mm-hmm. all the time. Just drives me nuts. Yeah. Well, I mean, their arms can't be that long. No, no. I, so, I, I sent word down to our people. We to, we still have people. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, all the Cubans are up here. Or, Some of the younger people are still loyalists and. Uh, and they have the added advantage of being still alive. Mm-hmm. Well, his his children issued a statement denouncing the quotes. Well, of course they should have done that without our even reaching out to them. <laughs> I mean, actually they did before I reached out to them. But uh, Well, damn it all the minute, it seems to me that we're just sitting here on our big fat asses mm-hmm. letting other dead people kick us around. Yeah. See? Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't care if you're paddling around with angels half the time. It's... No. It's no more Mr. Nice Guy. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, of course, mm-hmm. Nancy Reagan passes away. Yeah. The media fall all over themselves yep. about her whole just say no thing, which was just our war on drugs with uh, <laughs> with lipstick on. Yeah. I mean, no, that's right. Well, we get smeared with this Ehrlichman stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Have you reached out to him, for God's sake? We can't reach him. He's on the uh, blocked list. You mean, wait, you mean after all his namby-pamby kissing up to the liberals about how bad things were with us, he ended up downstairs? Oh, no, 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 he's up here. But, but, then he, he, he's on the gold cloud. We tried to get on that one, but as you probably recall, they said we were lucky to get in at all, so. No, 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 I get it, I should have expected it. Liberals run this place, too. Well, I mean, of course, it's their right to have their views represented and so forth. But mm-hmm. uh, it's like I keep telling you, Alderman, no place needs a thorough top-to-bottom house cleaning more than this place does. Mm-hmm. Well, and I'm sure you agree. Well, I don't think no, that's... No, of course it isn't easy, mm-hmm. you say. But as I understand it, we have all the time in the world. See, I've so had people what? looking into the background of the writer. Mm-hmm. Possible that there's uh, something there that we could... Uh, Circulate by our friends. Look, here's the thing. Mm-hmm. That Presley kid that had his picture taken with me for the uh, war on drugs. Elvis Presley. That's it. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Now, so I understand it, and I did some reading up on it before that photo op. He was a white man who sang Negro-type music. Well, he did some versions so of... So he would be a perfect person to say there's nothing racial or racist or mm-hmm. race-baited mm-hmm. or whatever mm-hmm. in the war on drugs. See? Well, now I know he's up here too, but uh, people have issued communications from uh, up here before, haven't they? Well, I think in the Bible there's some reference oh, to... Oh, sure, but uh, Quakers didn't read the Bible all that, that much. Mm-hmm. Still, I seem to recall... I don't think anybody did that sort of thing to... Uh, Rescue a political reputation now. Well, I mean, but as you and I both know, nobody with a political reputation in need of rescuing had even gotten in up here before we had our little... Uh, our little operation. No, that's that's yeah. true. Yep. 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 Mm-hmm. So, still, I think a posthumous statement from Elvis Presley might not be the most helpful way to put this whole thing to bed. Well, we get one hell of a lot of attention. Might kick that Trump fellow right off page one for a day or two. If that. Yeah. But, so could we get through to him? Or is, uh, is he on the gold cloud, too? 
Well, there was the whole drug thing with him, so no, no, he's very reachable. But mm. I think that very fact might mitigate his value of, at this point in time. The drug thing? It was a little thing. I see. I see. Mm. Next time we really do have to be a little bit more careful, to say the least, in vetting the people who get medals for participating in the war on drugs, don't you think? Well, knowing what we know now... But I mean, so everything that Ehrlichman supposedly said to the Jewish reporter now just stands there on the public record, unanswered by us. Is that... Well, as I say, we still have some friends who are combing his background. Mm -hmm. Something turns up there, a sex thing, a drug thing. We we can't still get his tax records? No. No, that capability is long gone. Mm -hmm. Uh Well, of course it is. Mm -hmm. What was I? Now, this fellow is the type to have a shrink, isn't he? A shrink whose office we can black bag... Can't we? You, Last information I've gotten, nobody has shrinks anymore and they just take pills. Well, that's something. I mean, <laughs> I mean everything else is turning to crap, but that, that, that's something. Yes, it is. It, it, it's something. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, go have a happy Easter, then. Yes, sir. And now, the apologies of the week. On an official visit to the former Dutch colony where he met his Indonesian counterpart Retno Marsudi in Jakarta, Indonesia, the Dutch foreign minister Bert Kunders spent this week visiting a memorial in a village where a massacre took place. The tragedy of that time is a black page in our history. He said we have acknowledged the mistakes were made and the terrible things have happened. That is why the Dutch government has apologized. I hope this also contributes to further reconciliation. He told students in Jakarta, Indonesia and the Netherlands must have the courage to confront the difficult periods and events in their common past to be able to move forward together. After the birth of the Indonesian Republic, In 1945, we experienced a painful separation, a process marked by terrible violence. The deployment of military force in 1947 put the Netherlands on the wrong side of history, unquote. The Dutch representative, foreign minister, no criminal investigation was started at or soon after 1947, though a UN report published the next year called the killings deliberate and merciless. A civil court in The Hague ruled... A few years ago, the Dutch government pay 22000 each to seven widows, one survivor and a daughter of another widow. The massacre was committed by Royal Netherlands East Indies Army in December of 1947. In September three years ago, the Dutch government apologized to widows and families of thousands of men who were executed by Dutch troops in South Sulawesi in 1946-47, also in Indonesia. Dateline Charleston County, South Carolina, a North Charleston police official apologized this week for last year's fatal shooting of an unarmed black man. North Charleston Assistant Police Chief Reggie Burgess made the apology during a community forum at a high school when he was asked if culture had anything to do with the image of a police department. He answered first that he loves the city of North Charleston. He then talked about the April 4 incident when a former police officer shot and killed Walter Scott. I love my city. I want to work for my city, said Burgess. And I would not be involved with the department if the whole entire department was all that bad. We got some people that do wrong things. I'll admit that. I want to apologize to you all for what happened April the 4th. 
I want to apologize to you all. I got no problem with that. More police apologies. Peter Liang, the former officer convicted of manslaughter in New York City, apologized to Akai Gurley's domestic partner this week, a day after the Brooklyn District Attorney recommended that he receive house arrest and probation instead of jail time. Liang met with Gurley's partner, Kimberly Ballinger. Their attorneys were at the meeting, too. Liang expressed his sorrow. Specifically, he was sorry, apologized for what happened that night, said the partner's attorney. His exact words were, I'm sorry, I'm really sorry. He was convicted of manslaughter last month for the 2014 stairwell shooting death of Akai Gurley, 28. Trial evidence showed a single bullet from Liang's service weapon ricocheted and struck Gurley, who was walking in an unlit stairway at a public housing project. Ballinger, Gurley's partner, did not accept his apology and instead reminded him it won't bring Gurley back. Deadline Grand Junction, Colorado. Colorado Mesa University's assistant baseball coach Sean McKinney apologized this week after the school confirmed he made a homophobic comment about killing gay people inside the team's locker room back in 2014. Alum Tyler Dunnington said while playing college baseball, a coach made a remark about killing gay people in Wyoming, referencing the brutal murder of Matthew Shepard in 1998. The article didn't specify whether the comment was made at CMU, but following the school's investigation, CMU confirmed that a comment of that nature was made by McKinney, who this week made a public apology. I want to apologize for the anti-gay comment in 2014. That is not who I am as a person. I would never intentionally hurt anyone. I talked to Tyler earlier this morning and apologized to him at well as well, McKinney said at a press conference. I've always thought of myself as a coach that the players could come for any reason, and in this instance, I felt short. I fell short. Coach McKinney and the university are now looking to change the conversations that happen behind closed locker room doors. For examples of those, see Donald Trump's Twitter feed. Following an escalating firestorm over Facebook postings by a Pittsburgh TV anchor Wendy Bell on what critics described as racist views following a mass shooting in Wilkinsburg earlier this month. She's removed the posts and apologized. I have removed a post I initially placed here on Monday. I sincerely apologize for that post about the Wilkinsburg mass shooting and the restaurant employee whom my husband and I encountered. I now understand that some of the words I chose were insensitive and could be viewed as racist. I regret offending anyone. I'm truly sorry. In the wake of the mass shooting, the veteran news anchor posted her observation. You needn't be a criminal profiler to draw a metal sketch of the killers who broke so many hearts two weeks ago. They're young black men, likely teens or in their early 20s. They have multiple siblings from multiple fathers, and their mothers work multiple jobs. Unquote. Police have yet to announce arrests in the case. Microsoft has said it is deeply sorry for the racist and sexist tweets that were generated by its Twitter chatbot. That would be a uh, robot program to chat on Twitter. It had been designed to mimic the musings of a teenage girl. Always a good idea. Tay was the name of the chatbot. was pulled offline barely a day after it launched because it was quickly taught a slew of anti-Semitic and offensive remarks by a group of mischievous Twitter users. Microsoft didn't count on mischievous Twitter users. In a typical response, it tweeted that, quote, feminism is cancer, unquote, and also issued replies which said the Holocaust didn't happen and, quote, Bush did 9-11, unquote. 
Another message read, quote, Hitler would have done a better job than the monkey we have now, unquote. In an official blog post, a Microsoft executive wrote, although we'd prepared for many types of abuses of the system, we had made a critical oversight for this specific attack. As a result, Tay tweeted wildly inappropriate and reprehensible words and images. We take full responsibility for not seeing this possibility ahead of time. The um, corporate vice president of the tech Giants research wing said Microsoft would big Tay back when we're confident we can better anticipate malicious intent that conflicts with our principles and values. An artificial intelligence expert said, I can't believe they didn't see this coming. See Zune for other examples. The British supermarket giant Sainsbury's has been forced to apologize to a customer who was told he couldn't have black pudding with his full English breakfast because the chef was a Jehovah's Witness, Religious Freedom Department. Alan McKay had dropped his wife off at work when he popped into the store for a meal at 9 on Wednesday morning, but he was stunned when he was told he couldn't have black pudding made of animal fat, blood, and oatmeal because of the chef's religious views. Jehovah's Witnesses regard blood as sacrosanct and won't eat an animal if it hasn't been bled to their standards. He was given by a refund by the store, forced to re- return to his home near Nottingham to eat his breakfast. I know it sounds trivial, but it's the principle behind it that's ridiculous. Sainsbury does a wonderful black pudding, so that's why I was so disappointed. Sainsbury has since apologized for the confusion. He confirmed the chef is a Jehovah's Witness. A spokeswoman said there had been a mix-up between the two kitchen staff and another worker had misunderstood the chef who asked them to prepare the black pudding. And... From the governor of Alabama, a public apology after some audio was released of him making remarks of a sexual nature to his political advisor, Rebecca Mason. Today is a uh, difficult day for me. The recordings that were referred to by Spencer Collier in his press conference were actually made two years ago. Since that time, I've apologized to members of my family, to Mrs. Mason and her family, And I apologize then to them for any conversations and behavior that was inappropriate. Today, I want to apologize to the people of the state of Alabama. And once again, I want to apologize to my family. The governor said he had never had a physical affair with Mrs. Mason. And uh, he said this happened two years ago. He's moved on since then. Move on, baby. The apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. Now some news of the of the Atom. Our friend the Atom, Japanese nuclear power operator, has said it would decommission an aging reactor because of the cost of upgrading the sixth to be scrapped due to tougher rules brought in after Fook. Safety regulations brought in after the disaster, requiring companies to build structures to guard against huge waves and earthquakes, meaning it could cost billions to overhaul Old reactors, only two are online after passing the test. Power companies have already announced plans to scrap at least five other old reactors. And radioactive material buried near an underground fire at a suburban St. Louis landfill has been found in areas where it was previously not suspected. But there's no increased health risk to anybody, according to the EPA. Releasing the first phase report of an investigation of the West Lake landfill in Bridgeton, Missouri, where... 
Nuclear waste dating to the Manhattan Project was illegally dumped in the 1970s. An underground fire is smoldering at an adjacent landfill. The investigation found radiologically impacted material in areas of the landfill not identified during previous investigations, but not present in areas previously presumed to contain it. It's further south than historically identified, said project manager for the EPA. The uh, EPA has ordered installation of an isolation barrier to make sure the underground fire doesn't reach the nuclear waste. They don't know why the underground fire has started or keeps burning. The fire remains hundreds of feet away from the radioactive material. And a local landfill opponent said the report is more reason to take the matter out of the hands of the EPA and turn it over, ladies and gentlemen, to the United States Army Corps of Engineers. Good luck with that. News of our friend, the Adam. Ladies and gentlemen, for the next couple of weeks, this program, which has no format, will be breaking format. You'll hear uh, conversations with a couple of people who've written things that I think are provocative enough that uh, I think they deserve to be examined in a little bit of depth. Depth! What a concept. And then a live show three weeks from today. In the meantime, that's the end of this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over these same stations over NPR worldwide throughout Europe. The U.S. and 440 cable system in Japan. Around the world through the facilities of the American Forces Network up and on the east coast of North America via the shortwave giant WBCQ The Planet on Mighty 104 in Berlin, on Soho Radio in London, around the world via the Internet at two different locations, live and archive whenever you want it, harryshearer.com and kcsn.org. Available for your smartphone through stitcher.com, available as a free podcast through SoundCloud, Sideshow Network, iTunes, and wwno.org. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans. Thanks to Pam Halstead and Jenny Lawson, by the way. WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Changes Easy Radio Network, so long from the home of the homeless.